1: And I'm Chef Plum.
2: We're celebrating the foods of Passover this week.
1: Later in the hour, we visit Ryan's, a New York-style Jewish deli celebrating 50 years in Vernon. And we talk with Liz Alpern of the Cafilteria in New York. Liz is on a mission to reimagine Ashkenazi Jewish food.
2: But first, we'll learn some of the history behind the symbolic food on your Seder plate. Our first guest is Joan Nathan. Many people consider her the authority on Jewish cooking around the world.
1: Joan is a legend, first of all, and the author of 11 cookbooks, including Jewish Cooking in America, Joan Nathan's Jewish Holiday Cookbook, and her latest, King Solomon's Table, a culinary exploration of Jewish cooking from around the world.
2: Joan Nathan, welcome to Seasoned.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: We're going to dive right into a history lesson okay? Um, because we want to get into all the nuances regarding the Passover Seder, but let's start at the beginning. Who was the biblical King Solomon and how does he represent a cuisine that is more than 3,000 years old?
3: Uh Aha! I guess he was really the first gourmet. He was the king who was building a temple and he had something like 700 wives. So these wives would bring, according to the Bible, they would bring spices and foods from, they all lived around the land of Israel. And he also tithed his, each tribe, there were 12 tribes of Israel for each month to go out to the then known world. They were wooden boats called day boats, D-O-U-G-H. And they went out, let's say to India and they would find um, spices and they'd find jewels and they'd find other things. They'd bring them back to adorn the temple and then people would try them. And I, I kept imagining what it was like if all these women were around in the temple in Jerusalem, they would be outside and they would be cooking. You know, there were no apartments the way we have them today. So there are all these fabulous aromas would come from everywhere. Going out and finding foods and bringing them back is the way that I think of him as a real gourmet. For example, I was in um, India a few years ago. And in the synagogue, it said that the first Jews came there at the time of King Solomon. And I realized, wow, they found these ginger and cinnamon, which they also found in in, in now Sri Lanka, and they'd bring them back to Jerusalem and bring them into the cuisine. Different spices were used. You know, cinnamon is something that gives you energy. So it wasn't just to eat. They became medicine for people. And and by the way, it was just the n- then known world. So it was part of the Mediterranean and it was the East because don't forget, everything came from the Far East.
1: Joan, as a private shepherd, before I ask questions, I have to just say thank you. Uh, I've worked with many Jewish families over the years and you and your videos have taught me how to cook Passover food and what a Seder plate is. I had no idea. And I've watched tons and tons of content from you. And that's how I learned as a private chef. So, oh, that's great. Thank you for that. I really appreciate thank that. You. Um, you've been called a food detective for your research on this topic. What are some of the foods that you uncovered and where do those foods come from?
3: What I'm really most interested in are the really old foods. I mean, not you know, ones that you want to throw out from your refrigerator, but like chickpeas. Let's, let's take chickpeas. Yeah. Chickpeas have been around for something like 12,000 years. They were the first protein of antiquity and they will be the protein of the future. They need very little water. And they came from all around the Middle East. Chickpeas are mentioned in the um, Epic of Golgameth, which is like 2,500 years before there was Judaism. They found 12,000 years ago, some chickpeas in Jordan. So that whole area, they found them. And one of the things that I did when I was researching this book, I found these tablets at the Sterling Library at Yale University. And there is a recipe for borscht there. Wow. Not the borscht that we know, but there was similar to that. From these Babylonian texts, you learn about what people ate. You also learn about what people ate from the Bible. And if I knew more about, you know, Buddhism and the Buddhist text. That's because much of Judaism, which is, you know, all of us in the the Christian Judaic world and Muslim world, stemmed from Judaism. But Judaism, really, a lot of the food stemmed from Buddhism and from the East. And foods of the East came early on to ancient Israel. And then they went from there you know, to the Western world.
2: Joan, it's what you're speaking to really, because you've mentioned India, you've mentioned Muslim society, Christian Judaic society, and you're really talking about the Jewish diaspora, which I think a lot of folks don't really know about. And clearly you've done your research and you're investigating and you've met tons of people throughout your career and throughout your research and travels. And I wonder if there is a particular person or a family that really struck you and their story and how that influenced your latest book? Well, there are
3: so many. Um, there's- I'm, sh-
2: I'm sure I know when you let out that sigh, I was like, she's probably got 17 swirling around in her head. <laughs> okay.
3: I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one in particular. I have this one woman in my book, um, Paola Fano. She's an Italian. Her maiden name is Modigliani, but she's not related to the painter. However, she's from an old Italian family. And I knew that one of the, the great Italian recipes are creciofie alla Giudea, which are artichokes that are fried. So she showed me how to do them in a modern way. And then I went to old texts and I learned that before there were artichokes, there were all kinds of thistles that people would eat, not fresh, but fried, because you ate what you could. Don't forget... There's nothing new under the sun. That's one one of the things that King Solomon said. But today we have everything that the world has right here, but we're not going to in the future. We're going to have to be much more careful and use many more herbs and grasses and grains. You know, so that's why I'm looking. I'm going to Israel next week, just before Passover, to look at the ancient grains. I'm really curious about some of the ancient grains because einkorn and uh, the emmer emmerweed is the mother of wheat and they all are there being used and there's a lot less gluten in them. So there's all kinds of experimentation going on. So I feel as if the past can teach us about the present and what the future should be. And that's really where I am with people and people that have long lineages. I mean, it just, I love it because they can teach me so much about the past. And it also, I get such a high from some of these interviews.
1: In the book, you write how amazing it is that sometimes it even takes your breath away. When gathered around a Passover table, we think that Jews all around are sitting around similar tables across the world, eating symbolic foods absorbed from culinary traditions developed over thousands of years. Can you just elaborate a little bit on that for
3: us? Well, it it happens to me every year. I want you to know. And it's it's really hard putting together Passover Seder. But what it is, is it's it's like one of the oldest theaters known to mankind. Here you're taking a story from the Bible, you know, the Jews going to Egypt, thinking that they would be able to live in Egypt, they became slaves in Egypt, and they went back, their journey um, back to the land of Canaan. And they... This is the defining moment of Judaism where the Israelites became a Jewish people. And the store the reason that you tell the story is that you want it to be remembered, but you want your children to remember it every year. So I have a very big Seder. I have about 40 people and I do all the cooking myself. Wow. And I love having these old recipes, old haroset recipes. Oh, let me just say, first of all, there are only three recipes that you really should need to have, and it's in the book of Exodus. It's maror, which is bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and you're supposed to have, according to Exodus, but it's not done, is a, roast, a lamb roasted outdoors I um, mean, eaten before dawn. And most Jews do not eat lamb at Passover for the Seder because they want it to be when the temple is rebuilt, they can have it. It's symbolic of the burned temple. To keep children awake, you need a lot of symbolic foods, a lot of tricks to keep them awake. So there's, there's a Seder plate. And on the Seder plate, you have Heroset, which is not part of the ancient Seder at all. And that was brought in by the Greeks. And heroset are uh, nuts and fruit that are sort of pounded together to remember the mortar when building, when the the slaves were building buildings in Egypt. Then there's parsley, which really is a, a sort of a dual thing. You dip it in salt water, not only to remember the enemies that were dead, but also it's a sense of spring. Then there's the roasted lamb bone. And that is something that, again, uh, the dis- reminds you of the destruction of the temple. There's egg. Don't forget, it's close to Easter. There were a lot of eggs in the springtime. Mm. And they were not necessarily chicken eggs either, by the way. More likely duck eggs. And that that was um, in memory of the festival sacrifice. And then, of course, there was matzah, which I think it, it means the bread of slavery. But it's also, some people think, that the Jews learned about yeast in Egypt and they wanted to leave everything that was Egyptian behind. So they decided to make their bread quickly out of just um, flour and water and leave the, the yeast. Of course, they didn't really leave the yeast. So these were all symbolic things on the Seder plate. And you have to have all these things. And then of course there's wine And there's a Haggadah, which is like the story of Passover. And each family has their own story that they tell. And one of my favorite things, which is something that we don't necessarily do at my Seder, we take the Seder plate and you put it over, this is a Moroccan custom, over each person's head so that each person will feel that they personally are going from slavery to freedom you know, that's pretty amazing. And you try to bring it to modern day. And you can imagine this year, everybody is going to be doing something with Ukraine and Russia at the Seder table. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's such a powerful image that you do around your Seder plate. And I think this year will obviously be very different. And to hear you talk about the specifics of of the Seder plate and the the Passover Seder table, I wonder if we could just go back, because I think commercially... If you're not Jewish, you know you're around the time of a Jewish holiday because your grocery store has matzahs front and center, right. whether you're Gentile or Jew. I'm a quarter Jewish, so I'm, I'm good with both sides. Tell us about the importance of matzah. How does it figure into the meal? And what is your favorite way to eat matzah?
3: First of all, matzah, for Passover, you're supposed to empty your house, according to the Bible, of fermented foods. For seven days, eight days, excuse me, and I just put them in the in the garage. But some people sell them traditionally, sell them to a neighbor and buy them back afterwards. So that means you can't have any bread. So matzah becomes part of the holiday. And for me, you know, I know that you can buy Passover cereal. You can buy all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't use it. I like to go back to what was, and all these we have a heritage of old recipes, and that's when I pulled them out. So, you know, it might drive my kids crazy. But we have a matzo pizza where they put tomato and cheese on it and put it in the toaster oven. Or we'll have um, ma- use matzo as macaroni and cheese. They used to do that. They don't do that anymore. Uh, my grandchildren will do it this year. But for the most part, we use old recipes, or we do something like called matzo braai, which is you know, soaking matzah in water and then stir frying it with eggs or I scramble them. And I like a savory. Everybody has a different way of making matzah braai. You know, sometimes you put smoked salmon in it. Sometimes you put, I put mushrooms in it. It's always good. My mother-in-law would, I don't know why she did this. She'd take one whole sheet of matzah. And it used to be, by the way, matzah was round. And if you get shmura matzah from the the Lubavitchers, which you can get, costs a lot of money, but you get these round matzah that were baked in ovens. They have matzah matzah ovens in every community. If you go to Europe in the synagogue, you'll find a matzah oven, like in Carpentras in France, way down underneath the, like a 14th century oven, or, or I saw one in Sicily and they'll also have a a place to kasha their meat in these communities. I mean, it's really incredible that it's this has lasted so long. And so you'd make these, the matzahs in the oven all over the world until a man named Manischewitz and some other people in France manufactured in, at the age of industrialization after the 1850s, they manufactured these square pieces of matzah so that's what we all know and then you crumble them up you know for matzah brite or before manischewitz matzah meal came into being you'd crumble them up and make your matzah balls which were canadal coming from german jews for your chicken noodle soup Mm -hmm. so it it became part of the seder but of the passover eight days but also you realize that every recipe has been changed or affected by whatever country Jews lived in. Mm. Therefore like Jews, some very religious Jews will not use matzah in anything other than eating it with butter or cheese. It's real hard tack for them. That's what the Lubavitchers because they feel that if you put it in water, it might ferment a little bit. So they don't have matzah balls for Passover or other things. And then Jews from different cultures use it differently. Like Greek Jews will just break the matzah up in their soup. It might be an egg lemon soup. You know, German Jews will make these matzah balls and so will East. And then these recipes went from Germany to the East. So to Poland and Russia. And, you know, as Jews were kicked out of places, they brought with them what they had and they adapted the cuisine to the cultures. And I'll give you a a great example of adaptation. Jews were in El Salvador, for example, from Eastern Europe. So they had made potato pancakes in Eastern Europe and they made yucca can pancakes in El Salvador with a cilantro cream.
2: I love it. Joe Nathan, it has been such a joy and pleasure to talk to you. I feel so much smarter now. You are unbelievable. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished, really, truly. Well,
3: thank you, and have a happy Passover.
2: <laughs> that was Joe Nathan. She's an authority on Jewish cooking and a James Beard award-winning author. Her latest book is King Solomon's Table. Joan shared a recipe from the book for flourless chocolate cake and you can find it at ctpublic.org slash recipes. Stay with us. Later in the hour, Chef Plum talks with the manager of Ryan's Deli in Vernon about what makes a great New York-style Jewish deli. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, if you think gefilte fish is a Passover dish to be tolerated as opposed to enjoyed, our next guest will change your mind about that.
0: That particular recipe it really tastes like spring even though it still has that old world flavor of the filter fish
1: this is seasoned we'll be right back
2: Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
2: In Joan Nathan's Jewish holiday cookbook, published more than a decade ago, Joan wrote, quote, surely no holiday food is more Jewish than gefilte fish, end quote.
1: So we wanted to know more about it. We found the perfect person to talk about the Jewish staple. But this is not the gefilte fish of decades ago.
2: Our next guest is Liz Alpern. Liz is the co-founder of the Gefilteria in Brooklyn, New York. She's co-author of the book, The Gefilter Manifesto, New Recipes for Old World Jewish Foods. Liz is on a mission to reimagine Ashkenazi Jewish food.
1: Liz Alpern, welcome to Seasoned.
0: Thanks so much. Glad to be here.
1: So for people who may not know, what is gefilterfish?
0: fish? fish is an appetizer. It's a dish that you would serve at a meal, um, but it is not a main dish. So I think that's worth noting. Is traditional in the Ashkenazi Jewish table. And the Ashkenazi Jewish table refers to Central and Eastern European Jewish origin. Okay. The largest chunk of Jews in the United States are Ashkenazi Jews, so they can trace their roots back to Central and Eastern Europe in some way. Their family probably spoke Yiddish. On the American Jewish table, you will very frequently find gefilte fish. It is generally a fish that is served cold. It is ground up fish patties, so to speak. Um, and so essentially what it is, is that you take um, the the meat of the the fish, you grind it up with onions, with spices, maybe with some matzo meal and some eggs, something that binds it together. And generally speaking, you would poach that mixture into little canals okay. in a fish stock. Uh, and then you'd let it chill and you'd serve it with some of the gel from that fish stock.
1: In 2016, Joel Rose, our colleague at NPR, described your gefilte fish as herby and fresh and not fishy or nothing icky about it. How do you describe the flavor of what you make?
0: Most Americans who've had gefilte fish have had one kind of gefilte fish, which is from the jar. The flavor of that is going to be predominantly fish and onion. Our gefilte fish that we make actually is a two-layered gefilte fish loaf. And so on one layer, we're using a uh, white fish and pike from the Great Lakes. And on another layer, we're using salmon and steelhead trout. So it's two colors. And we don't put any extra herbs in there. And the flavor of that gefilte fish loaf is that predominant onion and fish. But because we're using really fresh, delicious fish, um, you're not gonna get that fishiness, even though it's the flavor of delicious fish. In our cookbook, we have three different recipes for argafilte fish. And one of them, and I'd say it's our most popular recipe, is a ground whitefish pike, whatever kind of whitefish you can find. And we throw a ton of herbs in there. So we'll throw dill, we'll throw parsley, we'll throw thyme, anything that's fresh. We'll throw into the mix. Uh, so it adds color, it adds freshness, and then you have this herby flavor. What I like to think about that particular recipe is that it really tastes like spring, even yeah. though it still has that old world flavor of gefilte fish. Many times gefilte fish will have sweetener in it. So you will actually find sugar in gefilte fish or at the very least in the poaching liquid that you would cook it in. And that is generally the surprise piece of this. And depending on where you are from in Eastern Europe or where your family's from in Eastern Europe, you might have it more sweet or you might have it not very sweet at all. And there's actually a line on the map of Europe that's called the gefilte fish line. If you're further south, right, if you were from further south, what's called uh, like Galicianers, uh, Jews who were from actually present-day Ukraine, southern Poland, um, they had sugar beet factories there. Everything got a little bit sweet. Um, If you're from further north, uh, Lithuania, you might have a more peppery gefilte fish. So one of the flavor profiles that comes up when you talk to anybody about gefilte fish is, do you like it sweet or you don't like it sweet? And we find that our recipes all have a nice little hedge in the middle.
1: That all sounds delicious to me, actually. When you, we first started talking about gefilte fish, you mentioned those jars, and that's what I picture in my head. And this is definitely not that.
0: No, no. The jar is, is, is a modern invention. Mm-hmm. This gefilte fish was so central to the Ashkenazi holiday table. This was such a special dish that as time went on and Jews immigrated to the United States and they were no longer keeping alive fish in their bathtub they still wanted the gefilte fish on the table. Um, and so you saw commercial production actually patent the gel uh, in the 60s, the synthetic gel, because that was such a part of the uh, the experience of eating gefilte fish. So when it got manufactured and you couldn't quite get the gel, you had to have synthetic gel because this this dish was important. You know, what is lost in the jar is what's lost in mass manufacturing of any food, right? You know, you cannot possibly maintain quality. You can't possibly source the best, best, best fish. It might be on the, on the shelf for two years, canned. And that's fine. Doesn't mean it went bad, but doesn't mean it's good. You know, I have strong feelings about the jar, but I will say I meet people all the time who love the jar because that's what gefilte fish tastes like to them.
1: Yeah. What was your connection to Jewish food growing up?
0: You know, I grew up in, uh, in Long Island, um, in the New York metropolitan area. So I grew up with a, um, I would just say a strong culture of Jewish food ever present, uh, in my life. And, uh, I don't come from, um, a long line of cooks at all. You know, there was certainly home cooked food on the holidays, et cetera, but did not get raised at, you know, my mother, and my grandmother's apron strings, uh, right. necessarily, um, but it was kind of in the air whenever there was, a special meal it was generally a jewish holiday and on jewish holidays we ate jewish food right we ate brisket we ate roast chicken every friday night with potatoes uh we had challah every friday i went to the jewish deli every saturday after synagogue which is ironic because a lot of people don't go out to eat after synagogue but we used to go every saturday we went to synagogue and we ate at the jewish deli and so i'd have matzo ball soup every saturday my dad would have a corned beef sandwich every saturday so these foods were kind of just they really marked special moments Jewish food equaled important special moment in life. You know, the holidays are so central to Jewish life. And so if you're living uh a... in a Jewish rhythm of life, that every Friday night meal that you have with your family, or or in our case, also that Saturday deli tradition after synagogue, um, every Rosh Hashanah, New Year, Passover Seder, uh, those were all kind of the high points of the culinary calendar mm-hmm. and also the family calendar. So um, I didn't learn to make most of these foods until I went to college and I really started cooking for myself, uh, starting when I was about 18 and hosting people and, and wanting to recreate some of those important moments with friends and family. But even like a filter fish, which I didn't particularly like, it was part of my DNA from the start.
1: So for over a decade, you and Jeffrey have been revolutionizing Ashkenazi cuisine. Could you define Ashkenazi for us and describe the cuisine's characteristics?
0: So Ashkenazi cuisine refers to uh, the food of the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe, Yiddish-speaking Jews. What's interesting is that the origins of Ashkenazi cuisine are actually a little bit further west in Europe, in Germany and northern France. Um, And as Jews migrated east more and more, um, they integrated foods also from further east, right from the lands of Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania. Um, So. As Jews migrated to the United States, Ashkenazi cuisine became synonymous, or or very closely associated, with New York Jewish food, uh, because so many Ashkenazi Jews, mil- a million Ashkenazi Jews, immigrated to New York City, essentially, into the East Coast uh, between you know the 1880s and the 1910s or so. So that food uh, is very closely associated with New York culture um, and even American Jewish culture. Uh, bagels and uh, bialis, and uh, even cream cheese, which is an American invention, but very much of the Ashkenazi Jewish world. The characteristics of this cuisine are in some ways defined by the geographies that we're talking about. So in the winter, uh, we're talking about heavier soups and stews, slow cooked foods. In cooking them slowly, you would extract more flavor from them. Um, and so cholent, for example, is a, is a dish that is a traditional dish eaten on Saturday afternoon on the Sabbath. And it's a slow cooked stew with beans and a little bit of barley and some meat and uh, kind of whatever you had, right? And you'd slow cook it overnight and eat it on Saturday. The other characteristic of Ashkenazi cuisine is that in many ways it was defined by poverty. Most Ashkenazi Jews were not wealthy, with plenty of exceptions, but the cuisine was developed in a colder climate, a harsher climate of Eastern Europe and and by people that primarily didn't have abundance. So gefilte fish is a really good example of that. It's a dish that stretches how far one fish can go uh, to feed a family. So if you have one little fish, Uh, Well, you can't really feed your family a special meal of one little fish, but if you mix onions in and you mix um, breadcrumbs in and you mix egg in and you mix whatever else filler things that you have in and then you cook it and then you actually stuff it back into the skin of the fish, by the way, gefilte means stuffed, uh, then you have a dish that that is uh, filling and worthy of uh, the holiday table. So a lot of what defines Ashkenazi cuisine beyond root vegetables and onions and garlic and um, slow cooking is also this idea of how far can you stretch your resources. So there's a lot of ingenuity. That is one of the really interesting things to learn about. Um, It's also just worth noting that Pickled and preserved foods are are very characteristic of Ashkenazi cuisine as well because you have a climate in which your growing season is short if you're in Eastern Europe, right? So you you have to take that July cucumber harvest and you need to make it last. And so you're going to pull those cucumbers off the vine. You are going to pickle them immediately and you're going to eat them all winter because you're storing them in your root cellar. You're going to get every cabbage you possibly can shred it up. Fill your barrels. Make really salty sauerkraut so that all winter long you can dig into that barrel and have a vegetable. Funky fermented flavors.
1: You're making me kind of want to have gefilte fish now. I'm not going to lie. I'm thinking it sounds delicious right now.
0: Um, Well, then my work here is done.
1: (laughs) We have a winner. We have a winner. Uh, In your book, you say gefilte fish tells a story of Ashkenazi life in both Europe and North America so well. How so?
0: So we're looking at the ingredients of gefilte fish. We're looking at the method. It all tells that story uh, and gives a snapshot of that kind of poverty-stricken life that at least my, my ancestors lived, for sure. My mom always likes to joke that we were, like, you know, poor Jews, like, fiddler on the roof Jews, you know, like we, you know, we. there's nothing notable about our history at all. We were just those guys, you know, making it work with gefilte fish. So when you get to North America, what's amazing about gefilte fish is that you saw, essentially those small towns of Eastern Europe attempting to be recreated on the streets of the Lower East Side and in the tenements of the Lower East Side. So you would have uh, a woman go down to the market on Wednesday and get the best fish she could live for Shabbat for Friday night. And she would get that live fish, bring it home in a bucket, keep it in the only bathtub in the tenement, you know, um, as until until she clocked it over the head and made gefilte fish out of it. And and there are countless people. I am talking countless people who are alive today who can recall their families having that carp in the bathtub. And that is a classic scenario. You can't even bathe until Friday afternoon because oh there's a fish taking up your bathtub um, and that is because gefilte fish was really important, and uh, and preparing for Shabbat and having those special Friday night and Saturday meals was so integral to Jewish life. Even when Jews came to the United States, were attempting to find the way to to hold on to traditions and hold on to uh, what they what they love to eat in Europe. But then you also see this evolution of gefilte fish. So you see that gefilte fish um, is now being mass manufactured at a certain point um, is starting to be available on a commercial level and not made in every single home. It's also worth noting that at some point over the course of history, Jews stopped uh, stuffing the gefilte fish in the skin of the fish. So gefilte meaning stuffed. At this point, we mostly just eat the stuffing. Uh, We do have a recipe in our book for a full stuffed gefilte fish. And um, there are places like in Brighton Beach where you can still get a gefilte fish the way it used to be. Um, but for the most part, we just eat the stuffing. And that's because as, as laborious as many you know traditional foods are, at a certain point, it became maybe just a bit too laborious to uh, keep that skin and have to perfectly skin the fish in order to stuff it back in.
1: I mean, as a chef, I have so many questions right now. <laughs>
0: totally. the, the,
1: the fish is in a bucket. Why do we need to put it in the bathtub? Could just stay in the bucket? <laughs>
0: Uh, you know, actually that's a great question. Maybe they're just maybe it was just too small of a bucket. Google Carp in the bathtub, you will not be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so food shopping is a special part of preparing Shabbat. I mean, taking trips to Brighton Beach or Williamsburg offers that world of incredible Jewish food stores. Describe the experience of shopping in these type of places.
0: You know, they're also different. Um, I lived for about 5 years in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and Crown Heights is a particular ultra-orthodox enclave. And so there's quite a few amazing grocery stores, bakeries, fishmongers, and as somebody who doesn't exactly fit the profile of uh, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, I loved shopping in these stores and getting into the rhythm of Shabbat along with my neighbors. And to me, the biggest characteristic is that, you know, starting on about Wednesday night, you can start to feel Shabbat in the air when you live in, in a religious neighborhood. There's a certain... Pep in the step of folks who are shopping, right? You see a lot more shopping bags. All of a sudden, there's challah in the window. So you see these changes starting to happen, and you see people kind of bustling around. And Thursday night, forget it. You know, you can really feel it. So when I lived in in Crown Heights, I would. Sometimes, to just to torture myself, I would go shopping on Friday morning at the, at the grocery store in my neighborhood, the ultra-Orthodox grocery store, which was always just a stupid move, right? It's like, why would I go on the busiest day, you know, when everyone is rushing? But at the same time, that was when you could get the Shabbat specials that they would have in the store. Um, and there was something really fun and special about participating in that energy of Shabbat. And now I live in uh, I live in stuy Brooklyn, which is on the edge of Williamsburg. And so I have many, many Hasidic neighbors, totally different kind of Jewish community. One thing that I love about what I see in the community here where I live now that I didn't have in Crown Heights is that on Friday morning, flower vendors come out on the street, and they're not there any other day. I love getting flowers from these flower vendors on Friday. And that is just such a shift. Like all of a sudden, This concrete jungle just is blooming with flowers on Friday morning.
1: Wow. Liz Alpern, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. And I know how busy you are right now. Happy holidays to you, and we really appreciate your time. And good luck with the new baby.
0: Thank you so much. It'll be her first Passover coming up, so we're excited to to introduce her to all the new traditions. That was Liz
1: Alpern.
2: She's the co-founder of the Gefilteria in Brooklyn, New York, and she's co-author of the book The Gefilter Manifesto. We'll have a link to both at ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. When we come back, Ryan's Deli in Vernon is a New York-style Jewish deli right here in Connecticut. We talk to its longtime manager about the business and his favorite regulars. If he wasn't coming in,
4: he would call and tell us because we'd worry about
1: him. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back.
2: Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
2: If you live in Vernon, or any of the surrounding towns, you know Rhine's New York-style deli. The deli's been serving up pastrami, knishes, noodle koggle, ruggala, brisket, all the classics, for 50 years.
1: Here are a few more numbers. Every week, the deli sells 800 pounds of arugula and more than 200 sour cream coffee cakes, which are delicious, by the way. In a day, the staff prepares 20 really large pots of sauerkraut to top off their famous pastrami sandwiches. Four to five thousand people will sit down for a meal at Ryan's this week. And in a year, the deli will sell 100 tons of pickles. You can buy those in buckets if you like.
2: General manager and partner, Russell DiBella, started as a busboy at the deli when he was just 17 years old. He's been there for 20 years. Chef Plum visited the deli and sat down with Russell and he asked him to give us some history on how the deli got started.
4: Bob and Betty, Bob and Betty Ryan uh, and their brother Bernie, Bob's brother Bernie uh, from Jersey Elizabeth New Jersey and they moved to Connecticut for work actually Bob and Betty came first and he looked around and said Jeez, I can't get a corned beef sandwich anywhere and his thing was to you know bring what he missed to Connecticut where he lived now and then he called his brother Bernie and they and he came and joined up with them in 1972 they opened up uh, across the street and yeah uh, you know and it wasn't always a success right off the bat it took years and years of uh, hard work and and right. networking and promoting and to really get them going and uh, but again they they put in 17 18 hours a day seven days a week to get the place going and you know that's where it started and from there things just you know
1: kept on going and going So you talk about a good corned beef sandwich like he said couldn't get a good corned beef sandwich what makes a good corned beef sandwich like what is that?
4: It, it's, it starts with a good corned beef and you know years ago in, and still to this day they, we use Hebrew national corned beef, a kosher corned beef and it's it's got great flavor and consistent it goes from the mustard to the rye bread the imported swiss cheese if you put swiss on your sandwich or make a reuben uh, it's all those ingredients that you gotta keep your quality ingredients going
1: because yeah he said like a good like i, I picture a reuben sandwich being yeah. like a good corned beef sandwich yeah. is that what yep. is that what he was referring to when he said they couldn't get a i good, think a
4: corned beef on rye was his favorite his yeah. go-to you know and he's like you know he, and he went to a restaurant and they said corned beef and it was some you know frozen product that probably wasn't good or yeah you know, so, but, uh, you know, to to hand slice it, to order, to everything, you know, from the rye bread being artisan baked rye, New York rye, and it's, it's everything, you know, so. But, you know, I use corned beef, example but again, our, you know, from stuffed cabbage to brisket to matzo ball soup. You know, he couldn't get any of his favorites there, you know, right. so, so they,
1: they brought it all here. Well, what makes a great New York style Jewish deli?
4: I think in, in my it's it's the camaraderie, you know it, it's the it's you know the employee to customer relationships it's the the food from you know the the potato pancakes to a ruben to the slice of cheesecake but again it's 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 how the whole place is run you know it's not like a a five star restaurant where you have a uh, you know everybody's be quiet you know it's loud it's it's hectic you know it's a uh, a customer's going to add on a pound of rugula to the order you can say, yeah, in a minute I get it <laughs> you know, you can have you know you know you can have fun with the customers, and they know they, they like that environment. You know, it's it's the environment that it
1: makes too. So. Now, have you ever said that to somebody, and they're like, "What? Why would he say yeah. that?" Like, yeah, you got, I got a lady. Uh,
4: listen, uh, you yeah, have someone come and they, they cut someone in line. and Say, "Get over there. You, you know, you're not next." And, and they they laugh about it. They're not gonna <laughs> yeah. get mad. They just it's, they're used to it. So, but we'd be respectful, but you got to have fun too. You know, of course. Yeah.
1: So you started here as a busboy at 17. Yep. And now you're the co-owner. You've spent yep. 20 of the deli's 50 years you've been a part of this whole thing. Yep. So you're not a family member. Right. But what is it about this place that made you decide to spend your you know to make it your career? The biggest part is the people. You
4: know, it, it's the it's the employees, it's the customers, it's uh you know, I built so many relationships and all my best friends are here, you know, and uh, and again, the, for the customers, it's, you know, building relationships. It's rewarding to say, hey, this guy came in last week for the first time, and I gave him a, a taste of something. He's back. You know, it's really rewarding to yeah. see somebody come back and say, oh, I did that. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't have maybe came back if you didn't go the extra mile. Um, mm-hmm. We hope they would, and with the employees too. You know, you everyone is different. Every employee is different. Every employee has got their own issues at home and different things, but here you want to try to make a good environment for them and give them a, a second home, you know, to, that's important to me. So.
1: How many things have you changed since, you know, you came in here as a co-owner now?
4: Uh, I, we started DoorDash, which <laughs> our partners are very, you know, they're very, like, kind of old school. Uh-huh. And, and it, you know, that was a big change, and our customers enjoy that. But, uh, no, not, not too much. I mean, just some menu items here and there, uh, some retail items we've tried. And, you know, for example, like our mac and cheese we sell, at the mac and cheese dinner, we sell it in the retail case. And I said, oh, our brisket dinners are great. Like, let's sell that, you know. So we, you know, we, we end up putting brisket in a pan with gravy and sell it, and people buy them left and right. So it's, it's tough because you gotta, you got to keep to your – you can't change too much. You know, it's not like a, a regular restaurant. You can, oh, I'm going to put a different chicken dish on the menu, mm-hmm. right? But you've got to keep to your core but kind of just kind of step out of the boundary a little bit and, and try to attract some different things. But you've got to always keep to what you're
1: – Keep that core you, still there. You know,
4: we, we could sell spaghetti and meatballs all day long. But again, that's not what we do. Right? Right. that's not what we uh, that's not what we are.
1: Well, fifty years is an incredibly long time mm-hmm. uh, for any business you know local business, and yeah. you know you don't get that far without having support from the community. Yeah. Uh, talk about how the community has supported Ryan's and how it plays a big part in the business you do here.
4: It starts with how we reach out to the community too you know how we you know how we donate and how we support and, and we do everything we can. But it, it's also getting outside the walls, and that, that's what I like to do. is I'm on board. I'm on three different boards of directors. You know, you network with people and you meet people because if someone needs a catering order, they're going to go with the guy they sat with yesterday, mm-hmm. they had a good conversation with, and some guy they don't even know. So, being outside these walls is the big thing. And for me, learning that what Ryan's Deli was, you know, you think it's just a building, but you know, once you get outside and you, you hear people talk about it and stuff, it's really amazing. But I think always to be there for the community when you need it, you know, whether it's, you know, during COVID, we donated, I think, over 3,000 meals to, in, in sandwich packages, lunches, whatever, to frontline workers, first responders. You know, we were suffering, but they were suffering. Right. And we would rather stay
1: suffering but help them out. Well, you do it. You know, I'm a chef too, so we yeah. do it. We do it, We We make food.
4: You make food. You make sandwiches. You know, and it's, it's funny. It's like, you know, we, we could have the worst day ever, and you know we're short help, we're down people, we're we're hurting on product. You know, at the end of the day, I just want to sell sandwiches. You know, I, I don't I don't care. You know, <laughs> I want to make people happy with food. You know, so but but I think the community, you got to be part of the community. You got to be active in the community, and you have to. Uh, and you see the community come in here, it's local schools order yeah. from us, and we do donations for schools. It's all it's all goes hand in hand. So it's a partnership.
1: So and speaking about the community. And going back to talking about some of those hey, I'll get it in a minute, you know. Yeah. Uh, talk about some of your favorite customers you got here.
4: I've had I've had many over the years. I had one one gentleman uh, who, who stays dear to my heart it was Art. Him and his wife came in for many years and, and I when I was a busboy at seventeen years old, they came in for many years and they, they came in, they sat at the same table, eight thirty, every single day, they got the same thing to eat and his wife got cancer and he would come in and they'd sit in the car out front because they have friends and they want to they talk to and people watch and say hello to their people and uh, you know then his wife passed so he started coming in again you know and then Art, uh, Art was a great guy I mean we would go to his house we'd rake his leaves and we you know we we all pitched in money to get him an AC one year years ago because uh, he didn't want one but you know he had a good relationship uh, when we hit our 40th anniversary we gave him a care package like Stickers, hats, shirts, all 40th anniversary stuff. We send, He wasn't going. He was sick at the time, and he wasn't going anywhere. And uh, when he passed away, his uh, his son, who I knew he had a son, he called us, and he says, I want to talk to Russ. And I'm talking to him. He goes, I, I know everything about you. I know everything about you, kids, everything, because Art told him every night about me, in other people, too. And when he passed away, he was in his bed, and he had his hat right next to him, his oh, Ryan's wow. Deli hat. So, again, that's what we meant to him. That's what we try to mean to a lot of people. And I I love that story because now his son and his family, they come through every month now, you know, because they live in Boston. And they, not as often as his dad and his mom, but they, they carry on. You know, they stop in, they say hello, so it's like full circle. And that's what we meant to him. And, geez, we're just selling him oatmeal, rye toast, and egg sandwich sometimes, you know. And, but we were a lot more to that, did Art get uh, the
1: same thing every time he came in yeah,
4: he had a ch- he changed it up He had about five different options yeah. he did, you know. <laughs> if he wasn 't coming in, he would call and tell us because we'd worry about it wow. He would say he says, "I got a doctor to say guys i won 't in maybe i 'll be in for lunch he, he would call and tell us that you know, but we were his home, and, uh, and especially after his wife died, we were his support system, and uh, he counted on us every day, and we were there and you know we have a lot of customers like that that say that you know I come here. I get a, a woman that comes in often and she says, my, my son gets so mad at me when he sees my credit card bill. It's all Ryan's Deli. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's what they're, that's what they're doing. And it's, it's good to take care of your new customers, but it's really good to take care of the ones that are there all the time. They're the ones that are going to see you in a snowstorm. They're the ones that are going to see you, uh, you know, uh, during COVID. They're going to get takeout from you. You know, so it's uh, that's my favorite customer story, and uh, i never forget them.
1: That's 50 years in the industry. That stuff happens. If you've been around for 50 years, those yeah. are the stories you get. Yeah, yeah. When I mean, you yeah, see generations yeah. of families. And,
4: and, I, and it goes back to, and, and I worked with Betty and Bernie Ryan. Bob passed away in '88, one of the founders. The stories that I've heard from them is that, you know, a guy would drive off the highway and he'd say, you know, hey, geez, listen, I left my wallet, I need gas money. They would go to their pockets and give gas money to people. Wow. These are the stories that I've heard, you know. They they were they were very giving, and um, if somebody had a problem with something, they would fix it. You know, they would they would fix it immediately. You know, so the thing is, it's in, especially with multi generational businesses is that as generation change, you know, they don't sometimes have the same mindset. But I worked with them. They were tough business people, but they knew what mattered in the business.
1: That's great, man. Yeah. So great Jewish deli. It's got to have some great comforting foods like matzo ball soup yeah, and, yeah. and chicken pot pie, and, brisket, mac and cheese, and brisket. What are some yeah. of those dishes your customers want as we head into Passover?
4: Brisket's a big one. Brisket with au jus gravy, which is flourless gravy. We have a veggie matzo kugel. You know, we make our noodle kugel, potato kugel through the year, uh, but we have a veggie matzo kugel. Uh, we make a zimus, which actually is carrots, sweet potato, molasses, maple syrup, brown sugar, and actually we put, we put brisket in it. Uh, we just started putting brisket, and it's
1: fabulous. So, just tell everybody what zimis is. I don't think i am yeah, zimis is a,
4: it's a side dish. Uh, with, you know, with basically it's a carrot, sweet potato dish. It's a it's a vegetable okay. dish, uh, and now we put some brisket in it. Uh, but it's a traditional Jewish. Side dish for Passover
1: and Kugel is like that baked matzah. You know, yeah, matzah meal. Kugel. Yeah,
4: matzah uh, meal. There's vegetables in it and uh, and like, like a stuffing kind of. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, pretty similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's uh, you know you pour a little you pour a little gravy on it. It's fabulous. It's good stuff. <laughs> and actually for for Passover you know we make. Uh, because of the flour, you know, we, we make a matzah bagel. So we take matzo crackers, matzah meal, and we actually make a matzah bagel, which a lot of our Jewish clientele they use it for make a sandwich. They'll put a brisket sandwich on a matzo bagel. We do a Reuben on a. Mm-hmm. You know, and a matzo bagel and stuff
1: too, and that's pretty popular. I think a great tip for people going into Passover, maybe who want to make their own gravy, it might be interesting to talk about how do, to do a flourless gravy or what you can do with, you know, reducing it down or yeah, yeah, adding it, a cornstarch slurry to it. Yeah,
4: and, and, it, and ours is pretty simple. You know, basically it's you know, you let the brisket cooks so all all the all the drippings from the brisket. You know, we, we use that into the gravy and uh, we add some seasoning and stuff to it, but there's there's not much to it really. You know, but but there's a lot of flavor. Yeah. You know, off the meat. You know, so.
1: Well, Russ, thank you so much for having us here. I thank hope you guys have 50 more years than this. And, but I'm maybe open, maybe I'm you won't see, be here running it for 50 I'm years. I'm
4: hoping for at least 40
1: more. At least 40 more. Then I
4: can retire by then.
1: <laughs> Well, I'm hoping for at least a corned <laughs> beef sandwich right out of here. I can't wait to try yeah, it. definitely. Thanks, Russ. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it.
2: That was Russell DiBella, General Manager and Partner at Ryan's New York Style Deli in Vernon. You can see photos of Russ and the deli on our show page. Special thanks to Dave Wurtzel. That's at ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. There's a beautiful flowerless chocolate cake recipe from Joe Nathan on our site as well. Perfect for Passover. You'll find it at ctpublic.org slash recipes. Seasoned is produced by Robin Dorian akin Katie Tolarski, and Emily Cherish. Our interns are Sarah Gasparato and Michaela Savitt.
2: Thanks for listening, everybody. And a very happy Passover to all of you who celebrate. Remember, you can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people from around the country and in our own neighborhoods, sharing their culinary traditions with us. See you next week.